You may be seated and please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll be going back in time a little bit to finish some, uh, I guess, some undone, some undone business, unfinished business that we have with Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you keep going to the right, you'll hit Acts in the New Testament, and then Romans, if you get to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you'll go back to the left. My name is Jason, one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and uh, grateful that Juan helped us think through belonging last Sunday from uh, verses 9 through 11, and if you remember, we were in verses 5 through 8 a couple of Sundays ago, and we ran out of time. I gave you for fair warning. I said we were going to run out of time, and I, I believe that it was for our joy that we uh, stopped there, considered the first portion of that particular passage, and now today we'll, we'll look at the rest. Remember, we were considering that what Paul was trying to articulate to us, and by God's grace, by his Spirit, hopefully that we are able to see, is there two types of way of living that he is talking about, not only in verses 5 through 8, but really all of Romans 8, 1 through 11. And it is either this life according to the flesh or life according to the Spirit. Life according to the flesh or life according to the Spirit. And, and he doesn't give us a, a middle ground. He doesn't give us a third way. It's one or the other. It's life according to the flesh or life according to the Spirit. And we looked at Ecclesiastes. You remember that King Solomon, David's son, writes Ecclesiastes uh, because he's looked at pleasure. He's looked at wisdom. He's looked at money. And he has discovered through it all, he's found them meaningless without God. He, he tried it all, in other words. He tried to live a life uh, with pleasure, with wisdom, with money, but without God, he discovers that those things are meaningless. And then we looked at the story in Luke chapter 15 of the lost son who went off to the far-off country looking for good life, but he was looking for that life away from his dad. And Solomon's writing, and I think also the story of the lost son, help us really to understand what Romans 8, what Paul's getting at here in Romans 8, these two different kinds of way of living. It, specifically, that when it comes to this life of the flesh, or life according to the flesh, enjoyment is not the issue, as we often think. Having fun, experiencing pleasure, or the good things that there are in this life, that's not the issue. The issue that Paul un un uncovers, and really Solomon, as well as Luke and the lost son, as Jesus is telling this story, are all getting at, is that it's life without the Father that's the real issue. Life without the Father is the issue. That's Paul's point here, that life according to the flesh is life according to me and to the prevailing impulses and powers of this world. Yet in Christ, what Paul continues to say is that we are empowered to live a life that's very different from the life of the flesh. It's a life according to the Spirit. And if in verse 1 in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, a kind of existence, if we're really honest, that's almost, we, we almost are unable to imagine it. This is why the Christian imagination is so important. Not imagination in terms of making up things, but of picturing the reality of things are despite what they may seem. To having a Christian imagination that sees and understands the way things, that the way things truly are despite what we may see in this life. The Christian imagination gives us clarity that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So regardless of what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, the truth of the Scriptures say there is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if that's true, that life with God comes with no condemnation, then my sister and my brother, you are free from judgment. God is not waiting to just drop the hammer around the corner. You're free from judgment forever. 
You, you, you've been judged in accordance with the righteousness of Christ, and there's no condemnation. That's some really good news. You, you don't know what your boss is going to say tomorrow, but we know what the, what the God of the universe is going to say in kingdom come. How good is that? How settling ought that be in the life of the Christian? I don't know what my children are going to tell me this afternoon after lunch. They may be completely displeased with what we put before them. They're going to judge me and go, Dad, you could do better than that, right? But the God of the universe is withholding no judgment from us because he has already laid his full weight of his wrath upon his son. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Life with God is freedom from judgment. Therefore, it's freedom from shame. It's freedom from condemnation, and it's full of joy. That's the life according to the Spirit. So let's not miss this. The difference that Paul is describing between these two different kinds of ways of living, life in the flesh or life according to the flesh and life according to the Spirit, the difference is communion with God. Life without God is meaningless. It's corruptible. It's here one minute and gone the next. It's a life according to the flesh, but a life with God is full of meaning. It's eternal. It's untouchable. It's a life according to the Spirit. I hope you're with me in this. This is just a recap of where we've been. It's really good news for us. See, what Paul is doing in this passage in Romans 8, verses 5 through 8, is helping his readers then and now understand three things about these two ways of living. And we looked at the first last, or two weeks ago, that the life of the flesh, that there's this life of the flesh that have these two distinct things. And now we'll look at the mind of the flesh and the spirit, and also the results of the flesh and the spirit. So we looked at the life of the flesh and the spirit a couple of Sundays ago, and now we'll look at the mind of the flesh and the spirit and the result of the flesh and the spirit. So the life is essentially like what it looks like to have these two different ways of living, the flesh and the spirit. But the mind is asking the question, what motivates? What's underneath these patterns of living? Is where we'll begin today. And then ultimately, what's the result? See, each of these ways of living, life according to the flesh and life according to the spirit, reaps a distinct consequence. It, it, it moves somewhere. It, it results in something. And that's what we'll consider today as well. So we've looked at the life, and today we'll look at the mind and the result based on Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. So let me read that portion of the scriptures for us again. We'll pray, and we'll get to work. Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Uh, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These are the very words of the Lord. And we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, it's usually in these moments where I'm looking at my sisters and brothers and I have no idea really what their weeks have been like. I may have had conversations with them coming in and like we are so prone to do, it can be very superficial if there's not enough time or the right space to truly be authentic about what's going on. And yet, I'm so comforted in this moment, my own soul, and I pray my sisters and brothers as well, that you are so mindful of them. And you care for them. You love them. And I pray in this moment that you would help us to look upward and see a God who is in control over all things, a God who knows everything from the heights all over this creation to the intricate details of my heart and of our hearts, there is no one like you. 
And in your immense power, you have spoken to us through your word. And so we go forward in fear and trembling that the God of the universe would speak to us, would be mindful of us, would would care about us. That's what the psalmist in Psalm 8 is just so flabbergasted by. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And yet here we are, beneficiaries of your grace, of your love and your attention. Oh God, help us to be so mindful of that. Help, help me, Father. It's so easy to just move through this moment so quickly and just look for a nugget of truth that's helpful and, not, and to ultimately miss an encounter with the God of the universe. And so God, we desire to hear from you and we desire to respond as children who trust the love of their Father as children who know that you know what's best for us. And so we submit ourselves to you and ask for your help to this end. We're looking at a text that was written over 2,000 years ago, and it was written from your very heart and mind. And so we we thank you for that gift, but we also ask for your help to discern and to understand by your spirit uh, what it is that you would have us know and believe and see today. And I pray, Father, also that your word bears this incredible power to change us on the spot. And so would you do that? Would you just... Do what you do, which is be faithful to your word and transform us from the inside out for your glory, our good we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So we took most of our time a couple of Sundays ago to look at this first portion, and really the first thing that Paul is saying in in verse 5 in Romans 8. And so now I want to, to look a little bit more closely at what he's saying, still within that first verse, and see how it connects with the rest of the passage in verses 6 through 8. In Romans 8, 5, he addresses the mind of the flesh and the spirit. Here's what he says. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So there, there may be just a couple of questions that we begin to ponder. How do we know if we're living the life according to the flesh or life according to the spirit? Perhaps that was kind of stirring within you a couple of Sundays ago as we've considered this first portion of this passage. How do we know if we're living the life of the flesh or the life of the spirit? Well, what, what are you thinking about? Is a natural question after reading verse 5 again. What, what, what's on your mind? What is your mind even, even more so? What's it set upon? See, Paul says your mind is either set on the things of the flesh or set on the things of the Spirit. But what does this mean? What does it mean to set our minds on something? Because isn't it true that we can read something like that and believe that we've heard it and yet not fully really grasp what Paul is saying? Because sometimes even trying to apply that truth, like, what do I do? What do I do to set my mind appropriately? And I think that he answers that for us as we consider. See, Paul is talking about what motivates each way of life. He's talking about what is underneath these patterns of living. He's talking about the issue, if you will, underneath the issue and how easy it is to just live on the surface of our lives and not to deeply contemplate what is going on within my own heart and mind as opposed to just what I'm doing with my body, but actually what's going on within me. And this is vital because the principle that Paul is teaching us here seems to be that whatever you set your mind on determines the kind of life you live. That whatever you set your mind on determines the kind of life that you live. That our thoughts, in other words, control our decisions and actions. However, I think that's a little bit too trite. I think that's a little bit too, I don't know, it's a little too easy. Because if you think about it, in Romans 7, Paul has just said something that seems completely the opposite of that, right? He has just said, remember, I don't do what I want to do. And and what I don't want to do, that's the very thing I do. So what Paul seems to be saying in Romans 7 
is that the things that I'm thinking, I cannot accomplish. And the things that I desire, I cannot do. And in fact, I'm constantly doing the opposite of what I really think and desire is best for me, right? So how could he then in Romans 8 say, if you just set your mind on the right things, then you'll do the right things. It's just, you're feeling that tension a little bit here. It's, it's not, that, not that easy. That right thinking, in other words, is not enough. It's not enough. So we can't simply mean here in chapter 8 that if we think good, we'll be good or we'll do good. That if we have good ideas about God, we will live according to his word. I, I imagine many of us start on Sundays with some really great thoughts about God, and by, I don't know, 3 p.m., we're starting to do stuff that is completely contrary to what we think, right? So it can't just be think the right things and you'll do the right things. I actually think that's quite, quite worldly. So Paul is saying something much more. That good, godly thoughts help for sure, but they are not enough for transformation. They are not enough for transformation. It's good to have our minds right and to have sharpened by the truth, but right thinking is not sufficient for right living. For instance, to, to be sober-minded of this, this is why we can look at the vast like, history of the evangelical world here in the United States and through the course of Christianity over the past 2,000 years, and see plenty of people who know the gospel. They know the truth of who God is, but they live in opposition to the beauty of the gospel that they proclaim. They can say on a Sunday in front of thousands of people, here's who God is, and they could be accurate in what they surmise. They have the right doctrine, but have committed heinous acts of violence and mistreatment of those even within their own flock. So let's just be even more real about it. I think Satan has impeccable theology in, a, in, in one regard. He knows who God is. He knows very clear and right things about God, and he's a punk. He doesn't live rightly at all. So there, there must be more than this. We cannot simply say to have the right thoughts is to set our minds on the right things, and therefore we will live appropriately. I think St. Augustine's work is incredibly helpful in this regard, and it works, I think his work clears the fog but it helps us understand what it means to set our minds appropriately on the things of God. St. Augustine was a Christian theologian from North Africa, Algeria, I believe, in the 4th and 5th century. And he explained the difference between life according to the flesh and life according to the spirit as a matter of disordered and ordered loves. And I'd like to take a lot of time today to consider this. To consider that this may be what Paul is talking about underneath these two ways of living. Augustine explained this in his book on Christian doctrine when he wrote, living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. In other words, to step back, look at life, and to determine accurately what's going on. He goes on to say, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. He is saying that to live the Christian life, your loves, your affections must be in order. You see, the problem with Solomon, I, I want to suggest to you in Ecclesiastes, is not necessarily that he loved the wrong things. He loved things wrongly. He didn't love the wrong things. He loved things wrongly. He loved them in an inappropriate order. See, what we learn from Ecclesiastes is that pleasure should not be loved more than God. Wisdom should not be loved more than God. 
Money should not be loved more than God. Your spouse should not be loved more than God. Your children should not be loved more than God. Your work, and on and on and on and on, should not be loved more than God. Now, this is really subtle. Because rarely do we wake up and go, I'm going to love things out of order today. I'm going to love my spouse and my children more than God. That's my plan. We rarely wake up and plan on loving things and people and stuff and money more than we love God. However, what begins to happen is I, I, I see this especially in, in my own marriage and in, in other people's marriages, right? That we begin to look at our spouse and start setting expectations for them or, or asking them to satisfy us in a way that only God can. We, we begin to ask them or presume that they can do something within our hearts that God alone can provide. Or when we allow our children to become the centerpiece of all of our decision-making, their well-being sets the calendar, sets the budget, sets where we live and the decisions that we make. When we seek pleasure and comfort and never even consider, is, is this God's will? And what does God's word have to say about this. See, our loves grow out of order when we begin to consider these things without being mindful of how God informs all of these affections. Are you with me? So what Paul is saying is that th those things, or rather those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, aren't necessarily thinking about bad things. And those who set their minds on the Spirit aren't necessarily thinking about godly things, per se. As if those who are, are her minds are set on the flesh are constantly thinking about hurting people, and those whose minds are set on the spirit are constantly like thinking about Bible verses, right? That these are the only things we ever surmise and think about. It's sort of like, I don't know, like the beautiful mind. Like all we see is not numbers, we just always see verses, right? This is all we ever see in our heads and hearts or whatever. I don't know. Maybe that's what's supposed to go on, but I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. See, those in the flesh aren't loving the wrong things necessarily. They are loving things wrongly, while those who are in the Spirit have their loves in order. See, the issue with the lost son is not that he sought pleasure and freedom in the good life. The issue is that he sought those things without his dad. Right? He, he put those things before his dad. He thought he could rightly love himself and the world without making the love of his father central to his identity and his story. Church, I think like the lost son, many of us are trying to enjoy our life without enjoying God first and foremost. In fact, even that sentence doesn't make sense to us. What does it even mean to enjoy God? For many of us, enjoyment comes after church, after these sort of spiritual encounters, after my time in God's Word, after I do the like noble spiritual things, then I go after pleasure. But what the scriptures teach us is that you cannot seek pleasure that is good for you without anchoring yourself in the pleasure that comes directly from the Father. In fact, some of us, I think, think we will only love ourselves and love our lives if God gets out of the way. We'll only love ourselves and love our lives if God doesn't interrupt, telling us what to do, what to think, what to say. We keep him in some sort of religious box and create this third way in between the flesh and the spirit. But there is no other way. It's one or the other. This is what Paul is saying. You set your mind on the things of the flesh or you set your mind on the things of the spirit. That is what he means. That's what this means to have our loves disordered, that life without God is meaningless and vanity. See, setting our mind on the things of the flesh is a result of disordered affections. 
Setting our minds on the Spirit is the fruit of our affections being in appropriate order. Not just in the right priority, but seeing that they are all connected. So it's not just that we love God first, but that I love my spouse as a result of God's affection for me. I love my children because the Father has loved me. I enjoy my work because the Father has given me this work. I steward my money and enjoy the things that the Lord has provided because the Lord has provided those things. It is directly connected with my relationship with the Father. I don't do the God thing and then go do the pleasure thing. Every pleasure is connected to the Father who has provided all of those things. This is what the, the lost son didn't believe. He, he, he thought the further away from my dad I get, except his money, I'll bring that with me, the further away from the father that I get, the more happy I will be. And this is the crazy thing about self-sufficiency, is he actually wasn't self-sufficient. He needed his father. And as soon as his father's money ran out, you know what he did? I better go back to my dad. See, so we even intuitively know this is not going to work out. We are intimately connected with our Father, and yet we have believed this lie that we need to create distance from Him in order to find enjoyment. So the life of the flesh and the Spirit is all about life without or with God. And the mind of the flesh is all about our disordered or properly ordered loves. Now Paul explains where this goes or how it results. See, in short, if you do life without God and your loves are disordered, you will remain hostile to God, which is death. But with God, your affections are ordered properly, and the result is what? Life and peace. That's how Paul puts it. Look at Romans 8, verses 6 through 8. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the, on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, life in the flesh, or disordered loves, what Paul says is death and hostility. What's really interesting about the way that Paul writes this in the original language is there's no verb. There's no verb either with the flesh or with the spirit. In other words, what verse 6 really says is for to set the mind on the flesh, death. They're, they're directly connected. There's not, there's not even a result. Like that just is death to do that. And to set the mind on this, the spirit, life and peace. That just is what it is. It's just life and peace to live in the spirit. This is a paradox. This is a paradox because what we think will bring us death actually brings us life, and the things that we think will bring us life actually bring us death. What I mean, think about it this way. The reason we would ever set on a life without God and to try to love pleasure and power and money and sex more than God is because we think autonomy is what brings us peace. We think those things actually in and of themselves will bring life and meaning, but they don't. So we think that these things Things bring us life and meaning, but they actually bring us death when they are departed or separated from God. Not only so, but we, we don't want to do life with God because, I mean, intuitively, don't we know it's going to cost us something? Like, if we really do life with God, we know we'll have to confess sin. We know we'll have to be held accountable. We know we'll have to be decentered and center our lives on Him. In fact, this is why Christian community is so hard, Right? When we do this thing right, and God is growing us in this here at Church of the Square, it's going to cost us something. I, I just know, as part of my generation, we love community with no cost. And, and we're, we're down with the community until it costs us something. And I don't know how long you've been at Church in the Square. Well, some of you, I know, you came with the furniture, right? But I don't know all, all of you in your story, but at some point, being a part of this community will cost you something. It will not always comfort all of, all of us. It will be hard. It will be challenging. 
That's life with God. Life with God is just so, and so shouldn't communities of God be the same way. See, we know to follow God means that instead of defining success and peace and joy and happiness on my terms, we're going to eventually have to define it on his terms. We know that life with God will cause us to submission. It will cause us to lament some things, some worldly things that we actually hold very dear. And so we think submission will actually bring the hostility. So are you picking up on this? We think that the hostility will come from life with God and that the peace will come from separating from him. We think the spiritual disciplines will rob us of peace as opposed to introduce peace in our lives. We think the opposite of what Paul is teaching here in Romans 8. See, what we think will bring us life brings us death, and what we think will bring us death actually brings us life. See, the son goes to the far-off country with his dad's money, thinking, what? It'll be fun. This will be awesome. This is what everybody dreams of. A ton of money and no rules and no parents. But then he meets his demise, and he wants to die. Solomon tries to embrace pleasure and wisdom and work without God. In other words, with disordered loves because he thinks it will give him meaning and peace. But what does he discover? It's all vanity. Conversely, think what appears like it will bring us harm and death actually brings us life. See, the son thinks, you remember the story from Luke chapter 15, the son thinks, I need to prepare to die and become something different. So when he's coming back, he's rehearsing a story about how, or a, you know, a confession that says, I'll no longer be your son, I'll, what? I'll be your servant. Because the son's dead. He thinks, if I come back, I better be ready for the son to die because that's the only way that this is going to work. Instead, he returns and is met with what? Love and celebration. So the thing he thinks is going to cost him his sonship actually highlights it. It reveals it in a fresh way. We all know, I think, that feeling. That feeling of dread, the, the truth coming out or even telling the truth, thinking that if this person really knows that I did that or failed to do that, or if they really know what's going on in my heart, they will reject me. They'll create distance from me. They'll know my sin, my imperfections. We know that feeling, but I, I, I trust and I hope we also know the feeling that did not meet that expectation, that when the truth was exposed, it actually released you of guilt and shame. It did the opposite of what you expected it to do. See, confession has a way of doing that. Even in these micro, microcosmic, 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 small ways, <laughs> this principle really is anchored in the cross. So this isn't just like a spiritual life idea. This is anchored in the cross. How do we know this? Well, Jesus Christ does what on the cross? He dies. He dies. But then what does he do? He comes back to life. This, so this is like not a side issue in the spiritual journey. It is the issue. It is the prevailing and fundamental idea that Jesus dies to bring life. So why would we be so surprised that the things we think are going to cause us death actually bring us life? This is literally our story. This is literally what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So there's a goodness in what it costs us to follow him. It strips away the things that hold back. It strips away the things that lie and deceive and break down and kill and destroy and gives us life. And I think this has some incredibly practical implications. So let's take just a couple of minutes walk this out a little bit. Because it's a really disruptive truth to discover that my loves are out of order and that the things I think will bring me life actually bring me death. And the things that I think will bring me death actually bring me life. I mean, the whole world is turned on its ear in the gospel, right? I mean, this is why we talk about the, the kingdom of Jesus as an upside-down kingdom. Everything within the kingdom is the opposite of what we think the world is meant to be about. We see this in, like, dynamics of power and of weakness. We see this in terms of generosity and scarcity. We see that the kingdom is an upside-down kind of kingdom. But when our loves are properly ordered, um, 
we begin to live a life which I think reaps the result that, that Paul writes about here of peace and of life. Immediately, we, we experience it immediately in part, but also eternally we will experience it in full. So a few things, that when we live a life in which our minds are set on the things of the Spirit and not on the things of the flesh, a single person can actually enjoy richer intimacy than a married person. That's something that fundamentally seems like that cannot happen. But if their mind is set on the things of the Spirit and their loves are properly ordered, the single person can actually enjoy richer intimacy than a married person. In Christ, they are not looking to romantic love or the prospect even of romantic love to satisfy a longing which only God can provide. So there is a kind of intimacy that you can enjoy as a single person which may remain elusive for even a married person whose loves are disordered. So it's actually not marriage that sets your loves in order. It's a fundamental understanding of who God is in all of life. Are you tracking with me? This keeps going. A young person. Have you ever heard a young person put an old person on blast, maybe even unintentionally with some wisdom? My chill, If you haven't, like come to my house. My kids do this all the time. They drop these truth bombs, walk away, and go, you're 40 years old, and we already understand this, and you don't. See, a young person can actually have more wisdom than an elderly person if and when and because their minds are set on the things of the Spirit and their loves are properly ordered. See, in Christ, they are seeking and understanding not through their, their lived experiences only, but through the living Word of God. See, in, in sort of an earthly sense, we think wisdom comes from lived experiences, and that's true, but only in part. It's not just through lived experiences, it's through the living Word of God. So this is why even in your youth, right, the Apostle Paul will write to Timothy, don't let him look down on you because you're young. Don't believe you can't have wisdom because you're young. The Lord gives you wisdom, not your lived experiences only. When your loves are properly ordered, wisdom can be enjoyed even at a young age, well beyond your years, when our loves are in alignment with God and His Word. A poor person can have more power than a wealthy person, which makes no sense in this world. We think that those who are powerful have money, and money makes you powerful. But within the kingdom, a poor person can have more power than a wealthy person if their mind is set on the things of the Spirit and their loves are properly ordered. See, because in Christ, they have learned to trust the Lord even in, if not definitely, in their weaknesses and limitation. And in their weakness, they find that God is what? Infinitely strong. See, money lies to you and tells you that you are strong, independent of God, that you can respond to all of your problems by yourself. What weakness reveals is the truth that left to ourselves, we are frail and we are desperately in need. So it is the dependent person, regardless of how much money they have, that truly knows what power is. An unemployed person can find more meaning than the president of a company. If their mind is set on the things of the Spirit, their loves are properly ordered. See, in Christ, they have discovered an eternal purpose which is not bound by a job, and those who are in the Spirit always have work to do that is eternally significant. And so if you're looking for meaning, your job actually cannot fully provide that. But being aligned with your affections and your loves with the Lord, you actually can find eternal significance. See, it's completely upside down. That those whom the world would say you cannot have Things like intimacy and wisdom and power and meaning. The scriptures say, actually, those things are coming from a fundamentally different place than you're looking for them and trusting them. See, the result of life according to the flesh of disordered loves is what? Hostility. Hostility inwardly and certainly with the Lord. The result of a life according to the Spirit, properly ordered loves, is intimacy, wisdom, power, meaning, and peace with God. Not a result 
of yourself so no one can boast, but ultimately as a gift from God. We do this because as uh, a contemporary scholar of St. Augustine, James K.A. Smith says that Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but informs our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. See, in Christ as part of the Messiah humanity and not the Adam humanity, under grace and not under the law, in the spirit and not in the flesh, means that in a moment but also moment-by-moment basis, God is shaping and reshaping and reordering your wants, your loves, your longings, and to more and more reflect his own. So here's what we need to do, church. In your disappointments and failures, And when tragedy shows up in your life, we are tempted to simply sort of innocuously say, why is this happening to me? What the Christian learns to say is how might God be reshaping and reordering my loves in the middle of this? How might God be reshaping and reordering my loves in the middle of this disappointment, in the middle of this grief, in the middle of this failed expectation? See, when you break up with that person you thought you were going to marry, when you don't get that job that you thought definitely was God's will, when your clothes don't look as good as they did when you bought them online, like all of those things, right? I was thinking about this morning. Oh, this is so silly. God help me. But the the older I get, the more vanity I actually see show up in my own heart and head and looking back at me at the mirror. It's disgusting, but here we are. I care way too much about what people think about me when they look at me. And a lot of that has to do with what I wear. And many times I envision myself like with that new shirt or pair pair of pants or something, and then I don't wash it correctly, and it bothers me all day long. What is that? Now, at one vantage point, it's just like, Jason, get over it. It's fine. Like, people love you. It's great. You know, God loves all of this. But I've got to actually search out the order of my loves there. There is something there that is not just some fabric not looking the way that I expected it to do. I was putting stock in an appearance and was willing to pay for it. And then when I wasn't met and I am disappointed for days about it, sure, it's this bad. I could tell you which articles of clothes I'm talking about. This is not a general idea. I still am frustrated those things don't look the way that I want them to. Because I believe that when I put them on and go out into the world, somebody's like, ah, you're almost cool, but that little... It's a little dingy now. That maroon isn't popping the way that it was supposed to. Did you follow the fabric guides on that tag, right? Like, so these things actually are getting to the interior of my heart and my life, and it's not just clothes. I'm loving something more than I'm loving God and believe they will provide something for me that God alone can satisfy. Am I preaching to you yet? Because this is what the Lord was clear about with me at 5 a.m. My loves are disordered. See, in that moment, as subtle And as insignificant as it might seem, God was reordering and is reordering my loves. He is displacing my physical appearance in my mind as a thing that will give me peace and reminding me that only he can do that. It is silly, but it is profoundly important for us to grasp. It happens in those little moments of disappointment, and it happens in the greatest of tragedies. See, sin has disordered the world. It's disordered our hearts. Life leads to death because of sin. And that's not what it's supposed to do. Life is meant to lead to life. But because of sin, it leads to death. 
So those who are made to have their minds set on God according to his spirit to enjoy life, all of a sudden we begin to set our minds on ourselves according to the loves that are out of order, which leads to death. So sin disordered the world, then it disordered our hearts. And so in truth, none of us lives according to the spirit. None of us does. We are all hostile to God and dead in our sins and live according to the flesh. This is what makes the incarnation and and the gospel so powerful in all of life. That when Jesus enters the world, he doesn't just die in our place and for our sins. He does that. But he rearranges the world. He makes it possible again, y'all, for our loves to be properly ordered because his were never disordered. His were never out of alignment. He never looked at his tunic and said, that's going to give me peace. He never looked at his shirt and said, that's really going to make me happy. He knew those things only came from God and they were enjoyed through the things that God gave him, but they did not come from the things that God gave him. See, all things come into appropriate alignment through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ because death in Christ leads now to what? Life. Because Jesus, the living Lord, died. See, what sin disordered, Jesus has set to rights again. And this work of justice, this work of healing, this work of the kingdom is all about setting the loves appropriately in alignment again. You see, there is only one person who ever pleased God. Because there is only one person who ever lived by the Spirit, set his mind on the things of the Spirit, and therefore resulted in a life of peace with God. So Jesus alone has always lived with God. And the good news is, therefore, he can give you life in the Spirit, life with God. Jesus alone has has always had his loves in order. So if you want to know how to order your loves, go to Jesus. He alone can rightly set your loves in order. Jesus alone reaped the reward of peace and life, and so he alone can give you peace in your life, in your heart, in your relationships, and certainly between you and God. Paul ends in a profoundly powerful way. He ends this passage by simply saying, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You cannot do it, my sister and brother, on your own. You cannot please him. It may may seem like a harsh reality, but but in Christ, and the, the logical converse reality of this, which must also be true, is that those who are in the Spirit always please God. Always please him. But if you are in the flesh and you cannot please God, the the end result of this passage is that if you are in Christ and a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come, you have a life in the Spirit with your loves in order because of the work of Christ, you are always one who has the pleasure of the Heavenly Father. So shame is lying to you. Shame is lying to you. Because shame tells you that you can lose something that God says you'll you'll never lose. Shame tells you something is flexible that God says is strident and strong. Shame tells you you can lose something that you never actually gained on your own, but was given to you as a gift. See, we are always at peace with the Father. Why? Not because we do all the right things, but because the Son has purchased our peace and has ordered our loves and is ordering our loves according to his righteousness. So for those who are in Christ, we now have a life in the Spirit where our mind is set on the Spirit and it results in a life of peace because of the work of God, and the life that now pleases God because of the life of Jesus. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that these things would be true of us. In an increasing fashion, Father, correct us, comfort us, help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.